Chapter 2 of What is Industrial Democracy by Norman Thomas. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by the Progressing America Project. What is Industrial Democracy? Chapter 2 The Autocracy of Capitalism. The rise of capitalism made for political democracy but industrial autocracy. Capitalism, compelled to break the shell of feudal custom, good as well as bad, and shatter the existing stratification of society, seized upon great phrases like liberty, fraternity, and equality. It advanced an individualistic and revolutionary conception of freedom of contract. It furthered the notion of political self-government, often unwillingly, which the capitalist found he could manage more or less in his own interest, but not by any means did it further self-government and industry for the general good. You had, instead, a bald government of industry by owners for profit. Labor was a commodity controlled like other commodities, by the law of supply and demand. Workers were to be got by the cheapest possible price, employed for the longest possible hours, dismissed with the shortest possible notice. The employer assumed no responsibility for what might happen for those for whom he no longer had need. They were merely hands, iron men, cogs in a machine. The very conception of the freedom and sanctity of contract worked to the laborer's hurt. He was free to bargain with his employer, but obliged to keep his contract. Yet he had only his bare hands and his hunger. The boss had the necessary tools. The early days of the Industrial Revolution were days of desperate misery for the workers. Even in a new country like the United States, in 1831, an observer of conditions in Maniunk near Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, reported that hundreds of children from seven years old upward worked in the textile mills from dawn till dark. And this is only one illustration of conditions continuing down to this very day. Is Machinery to Blame? It is the fashion in some quarters to blame the evils of the modern industrial system upon machinery per se, and to talk as if the establishment or the restoration of the good life for mankind would require the abolition of machinery or a great restriction of its use. Such, for instance, is the position of men like the English writer Arthur Joseph Penty, footnote, Arthur Joseph Penty, post-industrialism, end footnote. So extreme a statement of the case quite overlooks the historical fact that capitalism was established in an autocratic form before the advent of power-driven machinery. That most moving portrayal of the misery of the workers, Hauptmann's weavers, deals with a lot of toilers before the advent of great factories. About the time of our Revolutionary War, an English investigation of conditions in the stocking-maker's trade revealed an industry as shockingly sweated as anything more modern times can show. Yet stockings were then made on hand frames and not by machinery. Machinery has assuredly ended the days when the manual worker could hope to become the relatively independent owner of his own tools and master of his craft. It has also taken some of the craftsman's satisfaction out of work, but by way of compensation it has enormously lightened the load of toil. It is the control of power-driven machinery for private profit which has built up an impersonal, autocratic, 
exploiting force with a ruthless mastery over men's lives, and by way of answer has created great organizations of workers and promoted the very desire for democracy which we are to discuss. Capitalism cannot reform itself. If it is objected that this is an extreme statement, that under the capitalist system many reforms of working conditions have been made since the earlier days of the Industrial Revolution, the answer is plain. These reforms have not been made by the system voluntarily or from free grace, but under compulsion. They have usually been accompanied with the assurance that to grant the reform meant the ruination of the industry. Whenever capitalism begins the exploitation of a new country, the old struggle has to be begun over again. With the advent of modern industry in India and China, all the evils of early industrialism are being repeated. The 1925 strike in Shanghai calls worldwide attention to the labor of children four and five years old, the 12-hour day, and a wage scale ranging from 10 to 25 cents a day. The checks upon criminally long hours, indecently low wages, and the unrestricted labor of men and women arise either directly from the beginnings of working-class organization or indirectly from regulations imposed by the government in response to national or international pressure of a democratic sort. Capitalism thus examined is seen to be diametrically opposed to a true democratic ideal in two points. First, it is primarily for profit, not for the people's good. While the service motive and the profit motive may not be in conscious conflict in the capitalist's mind, they cannot both be master. And profit is necessarily master in our economic order. Footnote. The very Rotarians who talk most, and doubtless sincere, about industry for service almost invariably say that socialism won't work because it destroys profits and the profit motive. On this point of the supremacy of profit, see Stuart Chase, Challenge of Waste, League for Industrial Democracy, and William Trufant Foster, Profit, Pollock Foundation. End footnote. Early economists, with the aid of theologians, comforted themselves with pious reflections on the wisdom of a God who had so ordered affairs that when each man sought his own good, the good of all was advanced. Not even our orthodox economists and divines today lay that comfort so convincingly to their souls. Second, capitalism lodges legal control in owners who are in great numbers absentees. Holders of stock who may never have seen the inside of a steel mill, voting for each share they hold, are the rulers of the steel trust, not those who work in the mills or those who use its product. If workers or consumers have a vote, it is in virtue of their also owning stock. Actually, this legal ownership does not mean real government by the scattered and uninformed stockholders, few of whom take the trouble to vote. Control rests with powerful groups of insiders who are supported by the stockholders as long as they seem to be turning over profits and dividends. These insiders today are less often the men with actual experience in production than bankers and lords of credit. End of chapter 2